and welcome to the first full episode of the Securities Compliance Podcast, where it is our mission to help you put compliance in context. For those that tuned into our opening trailer episode, thank you so much for taking the time to join us again. For those new to our club, welcome. We're very glad that you're here. At the start of each episode, we will cover some of the hottest compliance topics of the day. Recognizing, of course, that the terms hot and compliance are rarely used in the same sentence, but I think you get the idea. Let's dig into some headlines, shall we? On the rules and regs front, in late August, the SEC expanded the definitions of accredited investor and qualified institutional buyer. While the previous definition of accredited investor relied on an individual's net worth to reflect financial sophistication, the new rules reflect the SEC's view that certain experience and knowledge may also demonstrate financial sophistication. A few key items to take home here. First, the changes will add new categories of accredited investor for natural persons that will include individuals with certain professional credentials like the Series 7, 65, or Series 82, as well as knowledgeable employees of private funds. Furthermore, the amendments will expand the list of entities that qualify as an accredited investor to include, among others, investment advisors registered at both the federal and state level, as well as exempt reporting advisors. Finally, the amendments will expand the list of entities that qualify as a qualified institutional buyer to include, among others, LLC corporate entities and some rural business investment companies. At the end of the day, the amendments to the accredited investor and qualified institutional buyer definitions are fairly consistent with the agenda of the SEC, particularly under Jay Clayton, to promote capital formation and expand investment opportunities to the U.S. financial markets. The amendments will, will definitely impact Reg D issuers as well as their investors, really add there a lot of catch-all categories that help promote regulatory flexibility. One thing, though, that I think we should all consider is how the vote here sharply reflects the philosophical divide between the various commissioners. On the Republican side, those who supported the rule changes, they seem to be primarily focused on the idea that expanding these categories of persons who are permitted to invest in these particular types of securities would facilitate capital raising by small businesses, particularly by very small businesses. On the other hand, there were two Democratic commissioners who, again, their primary focus here is with the failing to raise the wealth income thresholds when they are used to determine eligibility, feeling that, again, through the powers of inflation, this will gradually allow ever less sophisticated or less truly wealthy folks to make investments that they would be able to effectively evaluate. Also noteworthy, Commissioner Roisman suggested that we do away with these monetary thresholds altogether, and Commissioner Per suggested alternatives to remove this responsibility from the SEC that would help further empower investors to make their own decisions. On the risk alert front, there's a couple different cyber things that have occurred over the last several months that I really want to bring to everybody's attention. First, in back-to-back -back months, FINRA has issued alerts to help combat cybersecurity threats, specifically talking about, number one, several firms have informed FINRA that there are malicious actors using registered reps' names and other information to help establish websites called imposter websites that appear to be the representative's personal sites and are also calling and directing potential customers to use these, impo to, to use these imposter websites. FINRA also, in September, warned members of a widespread ongoing phishing campaign that involves fraudulent emails purporting to be from, from FINRA asking member firms to complete a survey. The email was sent from the domain at regulation-finra.org and was preceded by info 
followed by a number. Example, info5 at regulation-finra.org. FINRA recommends that anybody who happened to click on any of these particular emails, links, or images should immediately notify the appropriate individuals inside their firms. And for those compliance officers out there, it might be worth your while to do a little bit of outreach inside your firms to see if folks have received those emails. On the SEC's front, they've also issued a few risk alerts on the cybersecurity front, particularly around the idea of credential stuffing. So here in September, the SEC Office of Compliance Inspections and Examinations alerted firms to the increase in the use of this credential stuffing, which is a cyber attack method using automated scripts to attempt to log into customer accounts with stolen personal information. Think usernames, email addresses, passwords, etc. And the SEC urged firms to consider reviewing and updating their Reg SP and Reg SID policies and programs to help address this emerging risk. Finally, the risk alert identifies a number of best practices that firms have started to implement, which can include things like periodically reviewing password policies to ensure they are consistent with current industry standards, using multi-factor authentication, employing a completely automated public Turing test to tell computers and humans apart, (laughs) otherwise known as CAPTCHA, it rolls right off the tongue. Another one? monitoring accounts for higher-than-usual login attempts, and implementing firewalls that can detect credential stuffing attacks, doing some surveillance of the dark web for lists of stolen or leaked user IDs and passwords, and finally evaluating current customer accounts to determine which are susceptible to credential stuffing attacks. I think the important thing to remember with all of this is that no one is exempt from these cybersecurity and data privacy threats that are out there. Every firm, every compliance officer needs to be vigilant, as well as the regulators who are clearly also being included in these types of attacks. As we move into the next segment, and this being our first show, it feels like a good opportunity to revisit while we're here. If we're to make this podcast the masterclass for the securities law and compliance professional, it can't be just a purely academic enterprise. We need to hear from those who are in the trenches doing the work, and facing the challenges that we all face every day. And you know what else is great about this podcast? Our masterclass has no time limit. There is no end date, no final exam. Our ability to learn and to connect you with the experts that drive our industry forward continues with each episode. And with that, I am incredibly pleased to welcome to the show a woman who is responsible for leading the Washington, D.C.-based investment advisor and investment company examination office, within the SEC's Office of Compliance Inspections and Examinations, Ms. Natasha Greiner. Natasha serves as the Associate Director of the IAIC Examination Program within OC. This new position was created in 2019 to oversee and direct the work of approximately 40 lawyers, accountants, and examiners, whose primary responsibility is is to conduct examinations of offshore SEC registrants and support national examination programs initiatives throughout the country. Natasha, welcome to the show. So, Natasha, the SEC has remained incredibly active throughout the pandemic, and OC itself has published eight different risk alerts this year covering a wide range of compliance-related topics. What's been the secret to the staff's success at continuing to push out valuable content, and what's one item that you're most proud of? 
Great question. Before I answer, let me just note that the remarks I make today reflect solely my personal views and do not necessarily reflect the views of the SEC, individual members of the commission, or its staff. With that disclaimer, I have to say, you know, honestly, I've been really in awe of OSI and and really the commission's response, resilience, and real-time engagement throughout the pandemic. This is a very challenging time for many, um, and it's no different for the staff at the SEC. We quickly, right after we hit mandatory telework within the SEC's DC office, OC issued a statement, and we talked about and announced a variety of ways that we as OC staff recognized and, and was adapting to the circumstances that COVID presented. And, you know, we've remained fully operational and continue to execute on our investor mission, which I think is quite impressive based these challenging times, especially as we all try to balance work and life um, with everything that's going on. Our FY 2020 OC priorities, which were published in early 2020, have remained our priorities throughout. And we immediately transitioned and announced that we were conducting examinations off-site through correspondence exams. And unless it was absolutely necessary, we would go on-site. And we've been doing this for over seven months now. We also recognized that we weren't the only ones impacted and that the health and other measures necessified COVID-19 also altered the operations of our registrants. As a result, we remain committed to be available to answer questions and committed to working with our registrants to address things like the timing of our requests, the availability of our registrant personnel, and other matters to minimize disruption. I think we've been really responsive and creative in our approach, especially because many of our exams, especially domestically, were always on site. But now that we have to go and do correspondence exams, we've taken this at times to virtual environment. And I think registrants have been really creative as well in how they're adapting to this new examination feature, mm-hmm. including, I think, one of the most interesting things that happened and I thought really creative is, you know, when we typically go on site, registrants would give us a tour of their building, their floor. And recently, one of our registrants um, offered to take us on a virtual tour. And through through the meeting, we went through a virtual tour of the firm and saw all the things that we would have had we gone on site, which I thought was really creative and really adapting to kind of this new environment, which unfortunately, I have to say, although we all hope that we'll be back to what we our old norm was, I think that we're going to approach a new norm and hopefully at some point be able to go back on site. But I do think that the ability to do correspondence exams is going to be maybe a new trend as well. That is a really creative idea. I like the virtual tour idea. That's fantastic. Right? Yeah. And, you know, we've also been doing a lot of um, WebEx interviews of registrants so that they're still the face-to-face, which I think registrants have really appreciated because you miss that personal dynamic. You know, we're there to do an examination, but we're also there to um, meet individuals, learn from the registrant, learn their business. And that that aspect of the examination doesn't go away just because it's done via correspondence. Right. Another thing that we've done is what we've done historically in other times of market stress is we've really been trying to actively engage in ongoing outreach with registrants. And I'm really proud of this. I think we have done over 300 outreach events since um, FY 2020s, and, and most of which were done during the pandemic. And so um, I think that these types of outreach events or 
discussions have really helped us inform and gather information about the impact of COVID on our registrants, and including operational resiliency, and also assist us in um, addressing any issues or requests for relief that registrants might need because of the um, circumstances related to the pandemic. We've also been able to talk to many firms, hundreds even, about their business continuity plans, which, you know, as you know, um, investment advisors' compliance policies should generally address business continuity plans. But I'm, I don't know that many of, including commission staff, many of our registrants ever thought we'd be in the situation that we are today, a pandemic that would affect the business continuity of a particular registrant. But so we've talked to a number of firms and largely I have to say firms have been really thoughtful and prepared really um, thoughtful BCPs and have worked well during these challenging times. A few have even had pandemic related business continuity plans, which has been really unique. And I think all of these types of discussions have helped inform the staff and really give us comfort that firms um, have been We've been able to respond to the pandemic, respond to the telework environment and remote supervision issues, um, and, and helped us talk, kind of gather information about how we might be able to provide some best practice approaches for firms as we move forward. That's great. I'm also really impressed that some of those investment advisors had some pandemic related kind of, you know, provisions in their BCP plants. Yeah, no, I agree. It was it wasn't a lot, but even the idea of it, I think many of us would have never thought we would have been in a situation where that we are today. But the fact that people had had the foresight to think that it that it would be possible, I think, is really helpful. And I and I think um, understanding how firms have addressed their operational um, operations in a pandemic is going to be is has been insightful to us. But also, I think as we all go through this how we've all addressed and what changes we've had to make, whether it's regulatory or from a registrant's perspective, I think is really insightful as we kind of continue to move. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for sharing that too. I, I know just over the last, you know, six to seven months, seeing the way that the entire industry has, you know, had to adapt. And I think in many ways been successful at adapting to what's been a a uh, a transitional time and one that can be difficult to navigate has absolutely been very impressive. Speaking of impressive, Natasha, you you've had quite an accomplished career at, at the SEC. Tell me about some of the prior roles that you've held at the commission, and and in particular, I guess you know what are there elements from each one of those that that you think help you in in your current role. So I have been really fortunate to serve in a variety of roles at the SEC over the past 19 years. I don't know that when I started at the, at the SEC, I would have said that I would have been here for 19 years, but I think it speaks volumes of how much I've enjoyed working at the commission in a variety of different roles. I began my career at the SEC in OC, where I conducted exams of broker-dealers, which provided me a very unique experience right out of law school. I participated on examinations of broker-dealers, big and small, on a variety of topics and learned the ropes from many experienced examiners. This experience provided me with an understanding of the Commission's examination program at a ground level on experience on how the Commission examines for compliance with the federal securities laws and insight on how the industry works outside of a textbook. I then transferred to the SEC's Division of Enforcement, where I spent almost a decade, including in the newly formed at that time Asset Management Unit, where I conducted investigations into possible violations of federal security laws 
and litigated the commission's civil proceedings in federal district court and in administrative proceedings. I was actually really fortunate to work on a number of matters involving complex institutional and retail trading, market, market manipulation, fraudulent municipal bond offerings, accounting fraud, insider training, and the use of social media by investment providers. With this experience, I was able to continue to broaden my knowledge of the federal securities laws and really obtain a practitioner's understanding of the commission's authority to bring actions against individuals and entities. Then I joined the Division of Trading and Markets, Office of Chief Counsel, where I served a variety of roles over the course of seven years. Working in trading markets really provided me with a deeper understanding of the federal securities laws. In my various roles, I provided legal and policy advice on rules affecting market participants and the operation of the securities markets. Working within a policy division, I was able to work on a number of rulemaking initiatives and obtain a broader exposure to the federal securities laws and the federal statutes that govern how agencies, such as the SEC, propose and establish regulations. This experience really gave me an appreciation of the complex and sometimes overlapping interaction between the Securities Act, the Exchange Act, the Investment Company Act, and the Investment Advisors Act, and really a greater understanding of the rulemaking. As you know, the results of OC exams are used by the SEC to inform rulemaking initiatives, identify monitor risk, improve industry practices, and pursue misconduct, which I think really ties nicely into my overall experience with the Commission, including my time in enforcement, and trading in markets and OC when I started. That's really interesting. And, and again, what an incredible depth and breadth of experience. All right. Well, so let's, let's dig into our crystal ball a little bit, Natasha. So let's, if we were looking forward in both the near term and the long term, are there one or two kind of specific subject matter areas that you're really looking forward to working on? Th- think of if, if we're running the television trailer for the SEC, what, what scenes are coming up in the next episode and or potentially next season? Oh, that's a really good question. I think you had noted in your introduction that, you know, my office primarily is responsible for conducting examinations of offshore SEC registrants. And to date, there are approximately 1,000 offshore SEC registered investor advisors across the globe. Of the 1,000, approximately 30% of those are located in the United Kingdom. So each of these offshore investment advisors have to maintain complete and current copies of their books and records within the U.S. or submit to a written undertaking that it will provide those records to SEC staff. However, as I learned quickly when I rejoined OC late last year, there are various legal and regulatory hurdles in certain foreign jurisdictions such as the European Data Protection Regulation, GDPR, which is well known, or other privacy or blocking statutes that affect OC's ability to examine and obtain access to books and records from offshore SEC registrants. Our ability to oversee the, and obtain these book and re- books and records from all SEC registrants, regardless of their physical location through examinations, is critical to the SEC's supervision of such entities to ensure that they are, in fact, complying with the federal securities laws. So we have been working diligently to resolve many of these roadblocks through arrangements with our international regulatory counterparts. But as you can imagine, it takes time. And it's been something that the SEC and OC, along with the Office of International Affairs, has been working on for years. So after the 
Over the past year, we've made some significant strides in this area by taking a very proactive approach to resolve many of these issues within various jurisdictions. For example, in collaboration with our colleagues in the Office of International Affairs, we've been actively engaging with our EU counterparts to obtain additional clarity on the impact of GDPR and our examination authority and access to books and records. And based on guidance we've received, we've also been conducting examinations in certain EU member jurisdictions to provide us with a better sense of the impact of GDPR. Additionally, we've recently received guidance related to GDPR on a path forward to successfully conduct examinations within the UK, which is great news. Um, and I, so we still have a lot more to do on this front and have a really strong incentive to resolve these impediments to our ability to examine due to the inherent risk of permitting these entities to continue to be registered with the SEC with no oversight. But I really think that the momentum uh, of being able to resolve these roadblocks is, is moving forward at a great pace. And, and it's something I'm very passionate about, especially in this new role. And so I hope to see uh, us continue to move forward successfully. That's that's fantastic. And and thank you for sharing that. I know that is definitely an area that, um, uh, you know, only continues to grow in importance and um, glad, glad to hear that you and your team are looking at it. Let's let's uh, let's close today, maybe with a few more personal questions, because I, I would really love to get to hear a little bit more. What's the funniest thing that's happened since you've been working from home? There's probably a lot of stories that I could share, but probably the funniest story, one that comes to mind is, so as, as many other people, I've been working from home since early March. I'm working from my dining room table. It's not a closed room. And as you can imagine, throughout the day, I attend various video conference calls. And I had mentioned earlier, I have a nine-year-old son. So as any nine-year-old boy would do, he'll walk by frequently and make cameo appearances on many of my calls, many of them being virtual, and he'll wave at, at those colleagues that are on the call. Well, of course, he did it one time when I was on an interview panel with a candidate that was interviewing for a job within the SEC. He walked by wearing his Star Wars pajamas, saw the video, then stopped, came back, and waved until he was able to get everyone's attention, including the candidates. So unfortunately, unfortunately, I don't believe the candidate got the job, but I have a feeling that they're always going to remember that nine-year-old kid who didn't interrupt their interview. <laughs> Natasha, that is fantastic. I am 100% certain that the candidate will never forget those <laughs> the, your son in those Star Wars PJs. <laughs> well done. Let, let's... Let's get you out of here on this last question, which is, I'm sure, a question that many of us can uh, would love to entertain as well, which is, what what's the one thing you're most looking forward to doing when the pandemic is over? Oh, that's, that's a good question. It's actually something my family and I talk quite often about in our own uh, this family discussions since March, since we've kind of been quarantine to our house. Uh, and I think the answer is honestly traveling, traveling somewhere, anywhere, and taking a true vacation and experiencing something together that's different than our house. We were scheduled to go to Italy like many others who were planning a spring break um, trip and unfortunately had to cancel due to COVID. And so we've, we've definitely decided um, that unanimously that we'd like to go to Italy 
once the pandemic is over and it's safe to travel again. So we're really looking forward to that's fantastic. I'm, I am sure that that uh, in the in the pantheon of of top priorities, uh, you know, when when the major threats of the pandemic have subsided, are are traveling and and, and probably just any kind of social interaction. <laughs> I agree, so, Natasha. It has been an absolute pleasure having you with us today. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And um, and I can't wait to hear all about your trip to Italy at some point when when whenever we have you back. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This has been great. The final segment of today's show will be the first of its kind in the intro into a series of final segments that we will have on the podcast. Today's final segment features something we're calling outtakes. If compliance were a TV show, think of this as the bloopers reel where we look at humorous, if not unsettling, activities carried out at financial services firms that hopefully provide us all with a roadmap of what not to do when facing a similar situation or trying to execute a similar compliance function inside our respective firms. Essentially, leave these activities on the cutting room floor and outside your compliance program. In this first installment of Outtakes, I'd like to talk to you about your text messages. As many listeners know, the record-keeping rules for both broker-dealers and advisors requires all business-related communications between firm employees and with clients be appropriately captured, and this includes your text messages. During a 2018-2019 examination of a a broker-dealer on the West Coast, the staff learned that BD's registered reps were exchanging business-related texts, including the size of orders, timing of trades, product offerings, updates on markets and securities prices, and the timing of certain administrative filings with the commission. As you might expect, this included even the most senior-level people at the firm who also engaged in the activity. But wait, there's more. The SEC only found out about the existence of the text messages because the representatives themselves had referenced the texts in emails to clients, which were also produced to the staff. Essentially, it was a situation where the representative said in an email, I already provided you with that answer. Check the text I sent you on XX date. In the words of the wise philosopher and former NFL linebacker, Brian Arakbo, come on, man. What we doing out here, man? First things first, if you're communicating with employees or clients over text, make sure you're capturing those records. But if you're not capturing those texts currently, I would highly recommend avoiding providing direct references to how you're violating the record-keeping rules in an email. And that'll do it for today's show. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Calfi and the National Society of Compliance Professionals. And I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guest, Natasha Greiner, for coming on today's show. Please join us again next time on the Securities Compliance Podcast, where we help you put compliance in context. You can listen and subscribe to the show wherever you find your favorite podcasts, or go to compliance and to listen and learn more.